Miss the show? No worries, we got you covered on point and on the podcast. Is populism dividing the conservative party? Their needs absolutely should not be ignored, but how do you unite those who refuse to meet you halfway? We'll talk about that and the effect it's having on Aaron O'Toole. Toronto and Peel Public Health bring in some draconian measures that start Monday and are going to have a huge impact on not just the kids, but parents right across the GTA. And the future of long-term care, what does it look like moving forward? Is private care going to be a thing or is the government going to take over? Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Are you listening? You know what that's the sound of? That'd be crickets. Crickets from those who dumped a very confusing policy on parents today, and it's going to paralyze our lives because it's as clear as snot. Alex Pearson with you on this Friday, December the 4th, a weekend we should all be very excited about. But of course, you know, for parents, it welcomes a kind of new hell that will start on Monday, which will possibly make your lives a whole lot more hectic because it's confusing. And it won't just mean kids will miss a whole lot more classes, but parents, we could lose a lot more work, not to mention the last of our sanity. And this isn't the province doing this. This new mandate coming from Toronto and Peel Public Health that have decided starting Monday, kids with any symptom at all, be it sniffle, tummy ache, headache, they stay home. Their siblings also stay home, even if they're perfectly fine. And parents, you stay home because you have to isolate until said child is symptom-free. That is not all. Parents, now you got to get your kid a COVID test or a doctor appointment, which if you've tried of late, it's extraordinarily impossible. And if you don't do either of those things, then you and the kids stay home for two weeks. So if you're a single parent, I wish you the best of luck. If you have parents uh, both working out of the house, you're working at home. And if you're a low-income earner, I guess you just have to suck this up too. Uh, This isn't just bad policy. It is really confusing policy, and it is not being driven by data. It is kind of just being made up. Because what kid, what kid that you know does not get a runny nose every day from November to March? And it is for that reason that the WHO doesn't have runny nose as a COVID symptom. And we don't have community spread in schools. Toronto Health, which I talked to today, They justify it saying cases have gone up in certain schools since September, 2% to 6%. Okay. But cases are not the same as spread. And if you think back to the fall, remember that point when parents were told, you know, if your kids are uh, sniffly or uh, you're going to have a cold, you've got to get them tested. It's a precaution. And what ended up happening? Well, it jammed up testing centers with thousands of parents going out and running around with their snotty kids for a test. And it led to a massive testing backlog of 90,000 cases. I know because I was one of those parents who had to go through it. And then it took 28 days for me to get the negative test back for my child. And I totally get, I'm not an anti-COVID person. I'm not an, I'm not a masker. I get this whole thing. 
And I also get keeping kids home for other symptoms like, yes, of course, with a fever. Of course, if they've got diarrhea, even a cold, coughing, yes. But a runny nose is an everyday event if you've got a child under eight. And like, what kind of runny nose are we talking about? Because apparently it's not any runny nose. It's a particular kind of runny nose that we are supposed to figure out according to public health. We're looking for a new or worsening of the runny nose. And so if a child has a runny nose when they come in and out from outside, if they have allergies and they get a runny nose from that, that's not the runny nose that we're talking about. We're talking about a runny nose that's now new. So a runny nose, like you say, that comes in from the outside, which should be clear, is that what the parent should be looking for? Are you talking about a runny nose that has a greenish color to it or some, you know, uh, something that is a different looking than an average runny nose? Because I can tell you, I mean, we, every parent will say, uh, you know, my kids got, always got kind of a runny nose. Right. So it's not the always kind of a runny nose that we're talking about. And those children who have the the runny nose that has been constant have been going to school. And otherwise, if they had a change in the runny nose, if it's a new runny nose, worse, um, more in, less indicative of having come in from the cold, but may actually be something going on, that's the runny nose. Got it? Clear as snot? What kind of snot? I don't know. You figure it out. We're going to have to figure it out. I came off that call and I'm going to play that interview at 7.50. I had no idea what kind of runny nose I'm looking for. And I think it's going to be a problem for a lot of parents. And uh, this decision apparently has been in the, in, in the works for weeks. And then you wonder, okay, why the hell wouldn't you give more notice than a weekend? I mean, why has this been dumped on parents late Friday afternoon? And if Toronto Appeal are going to be making such a major policy decision that is going to have such a big effect on almost every single household across Toronto and the GTA, then why didn't Dr. Scarf and Mayor Tory, why didn't they come out and explain it clearly today? They come out every single day. Where were they today? Because this is going to be confusing. It's going to be confusing for parents like everything else with COVID. It's going to make a lot of kids miss way more school than they've already missed. And it's going to make the lives of parents, especially those with more than one child, almost completely unmanageable. Because imagine the time you're going to lose at work, let alone the income lost, you know, if you're not on salary. And then, of course, you're going to be walking around going, okay, my kid's nose is runny. What kind of runny nose is that? Has it been going on for too long? Is it like the kind of runny that I'm supposed to report? Like, what am I supposed to do? And then what happens if you send your kid with the, the normal kind of runny nose and then the teacher says, no, they can't have that kind of runny nose. It has to be a different kind of runny nose. Like, Who's running this thing? Like who? It's crazy. And, you know, I get it. Those in charge are going to argue they've got to be aggressive in stopping the spread. Well, then maybe those in charge then should get their own crap together and aggressively start doing the things that they should have done, oh, I don't know, nine months ago, like testing and tracing. You know, whatever happened to these public nurses in all the schools? Where is all this rapid testing that we're told has been approved, but yet nowhere have I ever seen it? Where is it? Because it might come in real handy right about now if we could just put that in the schools. No? Let's just keep talking about it. We should just talk about rapid testing. And maybe when COVID's over and we're all vaccinated, maybe then we can actually order some. But of course... All we get is this knee-jerk, crazy, confusing policy. 
And just like everything else in this pandemic, it seems to be made up on the fly. It creates more chaos, a whole lot more stress. And I think it's driving a lot of people away from buying into these health you know, measures and safety precautions already in place. And again, why do you have to make it so confusing? If you've been working on this for weeks, then why can't you clearly explain the clear snot versus the other kind? Because I don't know what I'm looking for. And I'm thinking that a lot of parents are also not going to be knowing what they're looking for. And it's going to create a whole lot of instability on an ongoing basis. Why does a guy like Darren Sloan get away with what he does? Well, it comes down to votes, of course. And Aaron O'Toole was asked a few times during a press conference this morning, does he support this, uh, you know, conspiracy-fueled petition that Sloan endorsed and O'Toole sidestepped the questions? And yes, all MPs do get these kinds of requests from constituents, but Sloan didn't denounce the misinformation. So what happens is it becomes truth and in not taking a stand against it, Aaron O'Toole risks feeding things like the anti-vaxxers and allows a false narrative that not only doesn't represent all those on the right, but it further, I think, divides the right between the populists and traditional conservatives. So welcome to modern day politics where taking a stand now means you have to sit down to protect votes. And of course, populism's not new, but I think in the last four years, Trump has amplified it and COVID has certainly shone a light on this growing divide of populism within conservatism. And as my next guest writes, if you don't agree with their grievances or the fight of the day, then you're kind of the enemy, even if you're all supposed to be on the same side. Ken Bosenkuhl wrote the article. He is a McConnell professor of practice at McGill University. He was one time a conservative advisor, and he joins us now. Good to have you, Ken. Good to be here. All right. I have uh, not really well summed up what you wrote because it was a much more articulate article. But, you know, you have been in conservative politics for decades and you've seen this evolution. And populism was born out of a community who feel no one in charge really speaks for them. This frustration that the, quote, elites are out of touch with their needs. But they will vote conservative as long as most of their views are are met and, and, you know, they feel they've got someone representing them. Is that changing? Uh, look, I think there's a populism on the left and there's a populism on the right. I focused on the populism on the right because it's uh, gotten more attention these days. And as you said in your introduction, there's been a big example in the U.S. But I think I think um, what's changing is that they have legitimate grievances. Sure. You know, they've seen their a lot of these people have seen their wages stagnate. They see elites looking down their nose at them, and. You know, I, the, the, the title on my piece was The Populists Are the Problem. And as I've done more interviews and thought more about it, I probably should have said the politicians who stoke populism are the problem. And again, you started with Derek Sloan. You know, the problem there isn't, I mean, the pr- problem is there's anti-vaxxers out there and, you know, these people, these people are who they are. The bigger problem is people in leadership positions who, as I say into the piece, foment the anger of these populists and make and legitimize uh, the worst, uh, the worst instincts that they have. And so, uh, you know, I think it's irresponsible for politicians to do that. Um, you know, the another approach, the approach of Jason Kenney in Alberta, who says, I will be first in line to take the vaccine, but I will not make anyone take the vaccine is, uh, you know, some people think that's stoking, but I think that's a much more responsible approach than what we saw Mr. Sloan take. And I, I, I think that it's too easy. And, uh, and unfortunately, almost 
too successful to take the populist line as a politician and get those votes and try to win an election. The problem, I mean, there's multiple problems with that, but one of the problems is, you know, uh, populism is a possible way to run, to win an election, but it's mm-hmm impossible way to run a government right and so you know if conservatives just want to run around and make people mad um that's interesting but i'm not interested in that as a conservative i want to form government and i want to run good government yeah, I think we're seeing that with Doug Ford. You know, he is a populist. And I think one of the challenges he faces now is, you know, in trying to, to govern for all, um, you know, and trying to make everyone happy, he's starting to realize he can't make everyone happy because you, then you can't govern for all. And, and there's a risk of alienating big parts of the base who feel, you know, betrayed by uh, health measures that, you know, these lockdown measures, things like masking. Look, I think the populists are always going to just disappoint their followers because they got into office by doing uh, one or two or three of three things. Number one, they they stoke the anger, uh, whether it's whether it's racism or, or other crazy things. Uh, number two, they make silly, uh, silly promises. Uh, and I would in Doug Ford's case, the buck a beer, you know, it makes yeah. him really happy. But it really is a, a meaningless gesture. Or they make grandiose, grandiose promises. You know, we're going to build a wall that they never intend to actually fulfill. And so, you know, there's disappointment there or they're just just hyper partisan. You know, the other people are the enemy. The other people are the enemy. But that doesn't gratify once you've been in power for two or three years. That doesn't gratify your, your base. I, I should quickly point out that Doug Ford in this pandemic has been much more of what I would call a non-populist leader. He mm-hmm. hasn't he hasn't been bending to the to the worst instincts of some, of some of the people, some of his core supporters. And I think he's to be commended for that. Yeah, he certainly has been able to kind of grow into the role, but it is a challenging role because you can't please anybody in a situation like that. And so that's why you've seen his approval ratings go up. And of course, as this thing goes on, it gets harder to keep those numbers up. But he he is in an almost damned if he does, damned if he doesn't position. And you're right. On the left, I mean, they've got their own issues, but they don't seem to be called on to clean it up or demanded to explain it. And so it's a lot... Uh, different for, let's say, Jagmeet Singh or Justin Trudeau. They seem to be able to get away with it, whereas a guy like Aaron O'Toole, it's a very tricky position for him because not only does he have to play to the base, um, which is divided, but then he also has to play the media game, which will never let him get away with anything. And so when a guy like Derek Sloan comes out uh, and takes up all the oxygen in the room, you know, you wish that he could just say, look, this doesn't speak for me or the party. This is a petition he is handling, but I encourage everyone to get the vaccination. I think that would have been probably a much better way to handle it. Um, But again, you're always going to have a Derek Sloan in your party. And unless you whip everybody to shut up, uh, they are going to get probably the most attention in this 24-7 media world. Yeah, you know, there are outlets for this. We have this People's Party and Maxine Bernier is getting nuttier and nuttier as the days go by. And, um, you know, I wouldn't have a problem sending Derek Sloan packing uh, off to uh, the People's Party and can, him and him and Max can not wear their masks and make each other sick while we watch and get sick ourselves. Um, you know, I'm perfectly happy to let those kind of people go uh, within the party and um, and 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 say, look, we we stand for making life better for people. And we don't stand for things that are blatantly false. 
Yeah. And I do think, Aaron O'Toole, I mean, we could be going to an election in the next six months. We could be going next week. We could be going in, I don't know, a couple of months. Who knows when we're going to end up going to the polls. Um, and, and if you know Aaron O'Toole, uh, as you would know him, I mean, he's a nice guy. Um, he's had a long professional career, both military and politics. He's not bombastic. He's not radical. And he doesn't come off with these crazy ideas. He's a very likable guy who could probably appeal to an awful lot of people. But it is going to be a challenge for him. For sure. You know, what I like about Aaron O'Toole uh, is that he, you know, he came into the leadership race. He wrote a platform that was probably way too, way longer than was necessary in, a, in an election for leader. But he has a very detailed platform. And, you know, I think I think when you look at, at the at the populace that we need to keep on our side and look, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to say we should need to ch- chase all the populace out of the conservative movement. I'm just saying we mm-hmm. need an approach that addresses our underlying challenges. My very good friend, Sean Spears, has been writing about wage subsidies and, you know, moving in the direction of wage subsidies. Uh, I've been spending a lot of time working on child care and issues of child care. And I think if we go to the people that have these other grievances and say, look, let's put those uh, those silly things aside <laughs> or maybe not say it that way, uh, but let's why don't we look at what some real solutions to some of your challenges are? And I think if we did that, we'd be a lot farther ahead. And I think, you know, I worked for Stephen Harper for many years. I think Stephen Harper was a model here. He, 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 uh, had many policies from you know uh, subsidies to children to uh, to w- working with the, with uh, labor on apprenticeships and so on all kinds of policies that were that reached out to some of these people and said we hear you and we understand that you're frustrated and here are some policies to help and I think that's the right approach not running around saying yes you shouldn't wear a mask or yes you should right. be against vaccines like we don't need to we don't need to to foment the anger of these people we can we can work hard to try and solve their problems yeah certainly not in a time when it's easy to get people uh, angered because it's such a, a difficult time but uh, i think you 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 alienate and and risk um alienating large portions of the population if if you don't listen to them and i think that's a big part of the problem is that people kind of just ignore people who like Trump and, and people who like Doug Ford. They just like brush them off as, well, they're just kind of white trash. Well, they're not. They're a huge part of the population who want to be heard. Well, and need to be heard and have been and have been overlooked. Look, yeah. you know, conservatives, conservatives won a lot of elections running on lower taxes, balanced budgets and free trade. I am one of those. I've sort of left the partisan arena for a few years. As you mentioned, I'm a professor. I'm I'm going to do some thinking because I think conservatives need to have and find conservative solutions to non-traditional conservative problems. And I mentioned Sean Spear is another one of Harper's advisors doing the same thing. You know, I'm working on child care. I'm working on carbon pricing. I'm working on climate change. I'm working on a few other issue, issues like that. And uh, Sean's working on wage subsidies and labor and those kinds of issues. And I just think conservatives need to, need to realize that this portion of our coalition um, we need to find solutions to them. And some of the solutions we've had in the past or some of the policies we've had in the past have not necessarily served them well. And certainly our opponent's policy hasn't served them well. So it's incumbent upon us to do that, what I call in the piece, hard work. And uh, there's a bunch of us doing it, and I really hope we're successful. And I hope the leaders of the conservative movement across Canada uh, take the policy approach and not the anger approach to deal with these uh, people. Agreed, agreed, agreed. appreciate you joining us, Ken. Thanks so much. You bet, Alex. That is Ken Bosenkul joining us. And it's true, you've got to grow the base, but you've got to give policies that people will be drawn to instead of catchphrases and hashtags.
All right, parents, hey, listen up, because your lives and that of your kids could get a whole lot more complicated come Monday. This on news that Toronto and Peel Health have made some big changes to uh, the rules of going to school. Now they're saying, uh, as of Monday, that you have to keep your child home, even if they just have a runny nose. And if you have more than one child, they also have to stay home. And you'll either have to get a doctor appointment, which is impossible to get these days, or get them a COVID test. If not, they have to stay home for two weeks. And parents, if you have one symptom or until your child is no longer snotty-nosed, you too have to stay isolated. Dr. Venita Dubey is an Associate Medical Officer of Health with Toronto Public Health and joins us now. Thank you for your time on this Friday, doctor. No problem. I think my most question and probably most parents' question is, which child on this planet does not have a runny nose from November to March? You know, I want you to know that the symptom tool that has been updated hasn't changed the symptoms. So actually, even before our update today, if a child had a new or worsening runny nose, they were required to stay home for a minimum of 24 hours and longer if that one symptom, including the runny nose, did not get better. What we've changed now is we've recognized that some children with a new runny nose actually have COVID and it can even get better within 24 hours. And the parents have rightly so been sending them back to school and it's been COVID and has ended up resulting in spread within the school. So that's our goal here is to prevent the spread of COVID within the school setting. But even the WHO doesn't list a runny nose as one of the symptoms for COVID. Have they since changed that, that we don't know about? These symptoms are based on Ontario guidance uh, for screening. And I think the important point here is, is that we're looking for a new or worsening of the runny nose. And so if a child has a runny nose when they come in and out from outside, if they have allergies and they get a runny nose from that, that's not the runny nose that we're talking about. We're talking about a runny nose that's now new especially one that's, you know, associated with the child not feeling well. We need to now consider that because COVID is spreading more in our community, because we have higher percent positivity within our city, that that runny nose has more of a likelihood of being COVID. And so we need to take more precautions. So a runny nose, like you say, that comes in from the outside, which should be clear, is that what the parents should be looking for? Are you talking about a runny nose that has a greenish color to it or some, you know, uh, something that is a different looking than an average runny nose? Because I can tell you, I mean, we, we, every parent will say, uh, you know, my kids got, always got kind of a runny nose. Right. So it's not the always kind of a runny nose that we're talking about. And those children who have the, the runny nose that has been constant have been going to school. And otherwise, if they had a change in the runny nose, if it's a new runny nose, worse. Um, more and less indicative of having come in from the cold, but may actually be something going on. That's the runny nose. That's the headache. That's the sore throat that we want the child to stay home and now get that COVID test. But even more so, I mean, parents are saying, well, what if I've got two kids? I mean, now they both have to stay home. Now I have to take time off of work. I mean, there's going to, this is going to create a lot of chaos for an awful lot of parents across uh, the GTA. 
Well, as I said, in the original screening tool, a child was required to stay home for a minimum of 24 hours and sometimes longer, depending upon the symptoms. For most symptoms, actually, um, if there were two or more symptoms or uh, some of the other symptoms, they were actually required to stay home and get tested or stay home for 10 days. So that's not the change here. There is a change where we're asking siblings to stay home if there is a child with with one symptom or more symptoms. And that's because we've seen that siblings then attend school there's one sick child at home we find out the sick child at home has COVID now those siblings are in the classroom and they are actually spreading it there and so that's what we want to prevent I think the way to understand this as a parent is that if we all do this we can keep whatever COVID we can out of the schools, and then when your child is there in school they're, they're less likely to catch it yeah, I just think it's going to create a whole lot of you know confusion. I get the headache, I get the temperature, I get the diarrhea, I get those kinds of things, but I just think there are so many kids that kind of chronically are uh, wiping their, their nose and, and all of a sudden the parent's thinking, okay, now can they not go to school? And you know, the bottom line is that though, but the bottom line is that chronic runny nose is not the one that we're talking about. It's the new or worsening runny nose. And that has always been the case. The symptoms that are on there are new or worsening, a change that may indicate that there may be an infection going on. The other challenge, though, is, you know, when this kind of was the measure in the fall where you had to go and get tested or go and get a doctor appointment. I mean, I don't know if you've tried to make a doctor appointment for your child. It is nearly impossible. They don't write doctor's notes. They very rarely answer the phones. And it created such a backlog in testing of 90,000 tests with all these parents running off to get a test. Um, it, it created a chaos in the system, not to mention if parents have to take days and days off work. Um, that also causes a real stress, especially in lower income areas or if you're, let's say, a single parent. There's no question that we're working with our partners to make sure that the testing piece is less onerous for parents. And so, for example, we started a pilot in one of the schools uh, in the city where the it was expanded testing and the school was tested with saliva-based testing. It was a kit that you went home, collected your saliva and submitted it. And we're, there are also some other plans with our testing partners to be able to have some point of care testing available as well so that it will be easier to get the test. We do recommend that if your child has a symptom that they go to an assessment center to get tested rather because then they'll have the result. Calling the family doctor to get, to get a note, um, Unless it's a chronic condition, a family doctor can't can't say this is not COVID without the test. Yeah, I mean, TDSB put out the rules and suggest, you know, get an appointment with their, their doctor. And again, it's that's going to, again, cause, I think, real concern and chaos with the parents. But, you know, what is this being driven by? Is this being driven by union, um, you know, uh, demands? Is this being driven by actual tracing that you have been able to do? Because we have not seen the data. And I think a lot of people are saying, yeah. well, show us the data other than Thorncliffe School. Yeah, sure. Let me tell you about the data. This has absolutely been guided by the results of the data that we've been collecting since school started. So let's go through some of the data. One data point that we have is uh, more than 2,000 children got COVID between the beginning of September to the middle of November, and 30% of them had mild symptoms. So we know that children who are positive for COVID can just have a mild symptom. 
We also know based on our investigations, case investigations, outbreak investigations, and now these expanded testing, that children have symptoms, the symptoms resolve, they go back, and it's actually COVID. And so to take, for example, the most recent scenario where there was a broad-based testing done at Thorncliffe Park, 25 students tested positive and they said that they were asymptomatic, which they were. But a week earlier, five or more of them had symptoms, mild symptoms, and then they went to school. But actually, it was COVID. And that's what we want to prevent. We can't prevent the asymptomatic infections from coming into the school. And for that, we have those layers of public health measures, the masks the cohorting, the physical distancing as much as possible. But as much as we can block COVID from coming into the school, that's what we're trying to do. And I think most, and I think any rational person would say that is smart, but you know, rapid testing sure would avoid a lot of these problems. We still don't have that in place. There are things that, you know, we could be doing that would, that, you know, we'd be able to avoid that. But again, I don't know why there's not more demand to have rapid testing in place in school so that we could stop disrupting, you know, kids' schedules, parents' schedules. And I get it. I know you're going to say it's not surefire. It doesn't get everything, but it certainly is a good safety measure to have in place. And again, we hear the talk about it. What we don't see, it's nowhere in place. Well, I do want to say to you that Toronto Public Health, we absolutely support uh, additional testing in schools. Uh, we've seen that work. Uh, I was very heavily involved in the NHL bubble where daily testing yep. was a really important point. So we do know that there's a very important role for testing in controlling COVID. We are working with our uh, testing partners. We actually don't do the testing but we are working with them and have been in touch actually today with, with our Ministry of Health colleagues at the prov- provincial level to see if, if a child has symptoms, can they go to an assessment centre and get the rapid test there and then find out within 15 minutes, is it positive or negative and go back to school. So we're working on, on those initiatives. But I agree with you that as more and more testing modalities become available, we need to consider how we can roll them out into schools. Yeah, I got to be honest. It's too little, too late. We knew the second wave was coming and that stuff should have been in place. Um, and uh, I'm glad you've got the experience of how well it can work with the NHL bubble. I think a lot of people are wondering, well, then why the heck isn't it in place now for the wide populations? Doctor, I appreciate your time on this Friday. Thank you. That is Dr. Uh, Dubay of the uh, Associate Medical Officer of Health in Toronto Health. So again, New rules come into effect on Monday. They're going to have big implications and, uh, you know, it's going to affect a lot of households. So know the rules and uh, see where they take you. Good to have you on this Friday. And 10 months after COVID-19 struck Ontario and claimed the lives of more than 2,000 long-term care residents, there remains a myriad of ideas on how to fix the beleaguered system moving forward. You know, questions like, should for-profit homes exist? Should they be banned? Can we train enough frontline staff and afford to pay them more money? And how long will it take until long-term care residents and staff feel safe? In our final episode of Care Gone Wrong, Inside Ontario's Nursing Homes, Global Rick Zamprins looks at what might be next. People are dying again, and we are failing them for the second time. It's inexcusable. It's clear that Ontario's long-term care system is struggling to breathe, struggling to provide more than adequate care for our parents and grandparents, brothers and sisters, aunts, uncles and friends. 
Yet it has taken a global pandemic to expose the serious cracks in the long-term care system that the province has created to take care of our loved ones in their greatest time of need. It's incredibly difficult to hear, but the COVID-19 pandemic has shown us just how much more work needs to be done to improve Ontario's long-term care system. We'll be making a formal request to bring in those extra reinforcements, resources from Public Health Agency of Canada and Canadian Forces personnel. We certainly need to deal with the physical plant of our buildings and really reimagine what they could be. Throughout this 10-part series on Global News Radio, we have investigated how and why the level of care in long-term care facilities in Ontario has greatly subsided. The very real struggle between public and private settings, a day in the life of an employee at a care home, and even how different cultures approach caring for their elderly loved ones. In this final episode of Care Gone Wrong, we will look to the future and hopefully a much better one of long-term care in Ontario. Where do we go from here? How in the world are we going to get there? And is that place even achievable? How much will it cost? And how soon can the much-needed changes to end-of-life care be made? Nurses and PSWs and unions have been shouting from the rooftops for years that the system was already in crisis, that someone needed to do something. And despite all of that, it took the first wave of the virus for the government to send the army in. And then it seemed that once the army went in and issued the scathing report that it did, that was what was required for someone in charge at Queen's Park to sit up and take notice and to listen. Karen Cumming and her sister Patricia Milne co-authored the book The Indispensable Survival Guide to Ontario's Long-Term Care System after they encountered dozens of questions and difficult decisions about how best to care for their 98-year-old mother, Verna. I don't think my sister and I could ever have foreseen the crisis that unfolded after our mother passed away. She passed away in February of 2019, and uh, our experience of the long-term care system at that point was what prompted us to want to write a book to help other people navigate their way through this incredibly complex, complicated system. In the wake of everything that's happened uh, in connection with uh, COVID-19, I just shake my head in frustration at how we have been so ill-prepared to be ready for a crisis. Published long before the thought of a nightmarish global pandemic wreaking havoc on long-term care facilities and changing thousands of lives, Cummings says new chapters on the mishandling of COVID-19 in care homes must be written. It's already such an emotional time when your loved one is you know, in the final stages of their life here on earth. It's hard to say goodbye, but it's 10 times as hard when you're not allowed to be in the room. I think that's certainly one of the the biggest pieces of the puzzle that we would add to that chapter. But also, I think that there must be a chapter written about our government's complete and utter failure to prepare the system to handle this. There is no shortage of ideas on how to make Ontario's long-term care system a better, safer, more affordable space for residents, their families, and employees alike. Johanna Lewis is a researcher at Cardis, a nonpartisan think tank that is based in Hamilton and has analyzed some suggestions to improve the system. 
One of the ideas Lewis and her team analyzed is from Ontario's New Democrats, a plan Lewis calls bold and innovative and deserves serious attention despite having some drawbacks. One of them is their proposal to create an apprenticeship program for personal support workers. We're hearing a lot from the long-term care sector about the very real staffing crisis, especially the shortage of PSWs. The other really positive part of the NDP's plan is their emphasis on community in long-term care. They talk about strengthening home care to help seniors age in place, as well as shifting to a more smaller home-style model for long-term care homes. Homes that feel more like homes and less like institutions. However, Lewis says there are several proposals within the NDP's plan that are flawed and misguided and would likely stand in the way of genuine positive reform for caring for Ontario's golden generation. The ban on for-profit care should be dropped because it does nothing to address the structural problems that have led to poor wages and working conditions in all types of homes. The entire long-term care sector in Ontario is experiencing a staffing crisis. If it's a public home, a non-profit home, a for-profit home, workers are underpaid and overworked. The future of long-term care is one where there's respect, there's also joy, acceptance and value. The challenges of finally fixing our long-term care system are complex and will require partnerships with labour, homes and training providers to recruit and train tens of thousands of new staff over the next four years. We have to do a a better job. At the end of the day, the buck stops with me. The provincial government unveiled a plan in mid-November to build and renovate 74 long-term care homes in Ontario. It falls under the province's redesigned funding model and what Premier Doug Ford said would turbocharge the development of long-term care beds across the province. And over the next four years, the province is committed to increasing the hours of direct care for long-term care residents per day. But Karen Cummings says more staff is needed. Job one, no question about it, is staffing. PSWs are quitting because they're so burned out, they can't face going back in there again. Those people are angels on earth, and we pay them abysmally. We need to make that a respected profession that people will want to stay in. Since March, more than 2,000 residents of long-term care homes in Ontario have died as a result of the novel coronavirus, an unconscionable number and a reflection of the years of neglect by governments and operators. There is no magic pill for correcting the system, says Dr. Samir Sinha, Director of Geriatrics at Toronto's Mount Sinai Hospital, but he says it will take a massive financial investment. When it was becoming clear that 80% of Canadians who died in this pandemic were living in our long-term care homes, we had all of our uh, provincial and, and federal leaders coming out saying the system is broken, we're going to fix it, and we'll do what it takes. But fixing it means billions of dollars of investment. Plans to help create newer or rejuvenated and safer facilities is a good start, and educating the next generation of frontline workers and paying them a fair wage would go a long way to ensuring quality care. One thing is for certain, Ontario's long-term care system does not need tweaks. It's in dire need of strong action and ambitious reforms. Thanks for listening to Care Gone Wrong, Inside Ontario's Nursing Homes. For Global News, I'm Rick Samprin. You can join us live Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on point and this is Global News Radio.